Well, good morning. I have to tell you, uh, I am really, really thankful to be here. And for those extra claps, God bless you, thank you. Uh, listen, the Master's College has a very special place in my heart. God did a necessary and a great work uh, in my life during my years here as a student. And uh, I was really challenged in a number of areas. And one of those was actually in the area of missions and evangelism. And I really enjoyed uh, sitting and observing your global perspective today on Syria. Uh, one of the things I was challenged to learn here as a student was this, that when you hear about the news that's going on in the world, don't think about it just from the perspective of information or even entertainment, like, oh, that's interesting. Think about it through the lens of the sovereignty of God and what he's doing. And uh, I'm really thankful I can tell you as we were praying today that there are graduates of the college and seminary today who are partnering with uh, Children's Hunger Fund uh, to get relief aid into the hands of Syrian refugees all throughout Europe. We have graduates in Spain and Italy, uh, in Greece, in Germany, uh, in Austria, uh, some even in Hungary. And so when you hear these news accounts, it would be easy to just kind of let the numbers overwhelm you and even be hopeless uh, with regard to asking and answering the question, you know, what could we do uh, to bring the gospel to bear? I have some good news for you. Students who sat here years ago who obeyed the call of God upon their life are now in a place, positioned and prepared through their churches to minister to the thousands and thousands of refugees that God is displacing. It's a tragic circumstance, and we don't know what the future holds for the country of Syria, let alone uh, the broad uh, influx of more Muslims uh, throughout Europe. But God has appointed his people to do his work at his time, and uh, I can assure you that God will do the same in your lives uh, in the years to come. So uh, pray for your friends, graduates. You may not know them by name, but they sat here in chapel uh, week after week themselves, were taught the word of God, they were equipped in the classroom so they could go out and shine as a bright light and make an impact uh, in the world. And I am really grateful for the privilege and undeserved uh, opportunity to work with graduates now around the world. I just got to come back from Asia a couple weeks ago. Uh, was down in Indonesia and Singapore as well as up in Cambodia, um, all with graduates. Matter of fact, stopped in Tokyo on the way home uh, with a young man. I remember the day he showed up as a freshman here at the Master's College. And I got to have dinner with he and his wife, Marcia, and their uh, three sons. And uh, God has developed a wonderful interest in training pastors and church leaders in Japan uh, because of his faithfulness. And there were some challenging and difficult and lonely years uh, in between. But God's uh, blessed his faithfulness and he's using him. And so just know that uh, when you hear stories about the world, uh, that God is using master's grads uh, to faithfully represent him. And really, that's the most important thing we can do in our lives. Well, I want to give a special shout out to Hotchkiss. I see it's Blackout uh, Friday or whatever you're calling it. So... Well, I love the Master's College. I also have a, a very special place in my heart for Hotchkiss Hall. I lived there for eight years of my life. No, I did not keep failing my senior year. Uh, but after I graduated, uh, I, I was invited to be an RD up there in Hotchkiss. Uh, Siona far outlived me as far as the number of years in RD. Should be allowed to be uh, in Hotchkiss Hall, but great, great years uh, that I learned just what it meant to develop godly relationships, to be transparent, to be open, to learn together, 
about the goodness of God <clears throat> and what he can do in a young life that's surrendered to him. And so uh, I'm excited about what God's doing, not just in Hotchkiss, but C-Dub and Dixon and, and everywhere else that you might find yourself, and especially in Slight. God bless the folks in Slight, right? All, all 12 of you that are sharing a room, you know, uh, God's especially teaching you patience and long-suffering and, and preparing you for a, a, a very special life of ministry, trust me. Uh, I was asked uh, to participate in this series that is going on throughout the semester with regard to lessons learned in college, and there are many things I could preach and talk to you about, but uh, I was really thankful to receive this invitation uh, because I just wanna be transparent with you. I understand the life of the ministry of the college, but this topic and this subject actually takes me back to the very first day I walked into Hotchkiss Lounge. There was no WOW Week, there was no WOW program, there were no WOW groups. I showed up on a Friday night to check in, and classes didn't start till Monday. And I don't think I ever had a more lonely, fearful, anxious weekend in my entire life. Uh, trying to make the adaptation from all my friends in high school who none of them came here. Uh, I was the only one, and I had to start over from scratch. What I wouldn't trade for anything in the world is the relationships that the Lord gave me uh, while I was a student here uh, at the college and the way that God used them in my life. And so I'm privileged to talk to you about uh, this theme of what I learned in college, and I hope that it encourages you and, and blesses you. I know you've had other speakers. I was talking to Dave Hegg a couple of days ago. I know he was here last week and shared his heart with you. And so I hope through those of us who've come a little bit older, hopefully a little bit wiser, but through uh, our reflections back to those early years in our lives, uh, we can minister to you in a very honest and, and real way. And this morning, I just wanna share with you a little bit of my personal testimony, because that needs to uh, be understood to frame really what it is I needed to learn when I came to college, and then I'm gonna give you six lessons I needed to learn as a Christian college student. Well, let me tee it up this way. I grew up in a pastor's home, and I love my dad and, and my folks, but I was raised in a church tradition that I would uh, honestly characterize as being very legalistic. Uh, the focus was definitely on the externals, and so if you just did everything that was expected of you, then you were a godly person. And uh, that certainly appealed to my flesh, that somehow I thought I could achieve a, a measure of godliness or uh, gain the affirmation, or if I'd be really honest with you, what I was trying to do was just gain the love of God and the love of others. That's what my soul longed for, and I thought if I could just present myself in such a way that could impress others, then uh, I might taste of what my soul longed for. What made life a little challenging for me is we moved 13 times before uh, I came to college. And anybody out there who's kinda had a similar background can relate to the fact that every time you go to a new school, to a new church, you have to start over from scratch. And one thing that's really hard is when people who've grown up together and they know each other and they, they know all the shorthand and the history and, and all the rest of that, you just have to work overtime or you feel like you have to work overtime to somehow break into that and to gain acceptance. And so I was conditioned through those 13 moves and because I, I understood Christianity in, in the terms of legalism and external uh, appearance and gaining acceptance through, through that, you could see how those two factors really came together to create a firestorm in my own heart 
of, of reinforcing this idea that somehow I could learn to manipulate people to earn a place in the popular crowd or to gain their acceptance. I, I, I tried every way I could. Uh, I went to three different high schools. Uh, I had the chance, they were small private schools, but I had the chance to play football and basketball. And I was trying to check off the list. What are the things that I could do to, to gain the acceptance of others? I, I, to tell you how successful maybe I became in manipulating others, uh, to like me in that sense. Uh, I was voted youth group president. I was voted ASB president. I did the right ministries. And I did everything I could to just kind of work up the social ladder to gain approval of men. You know, when you work that hard to impress others by the externals, uh, you also develop a pattern of concealing what's happening on the inside. You push that down, you try to ignore it, you try to... Uh, prevent anyone from discovering that you're actually a broken person. You're a person who is scared to death about life. You're filled with anxieties about not only being accepted, but just succeeding in the normal things of life. Will I ever graduate? Will I ever find a job? Certainly will I ever get married or will anyone ever wanna marry me? And then what does that mean for the future? And so I look back now and I realize that what I had really developed was a dual lifestyle. I had a public persona, and I'd found ways to kind of master that. But there was this other reality of what was going on in my soul. In one sense, I, was, I had learned to be outgoing, uh, tried to be influential, tried to do all the socially acceptable things, and tried to be a popular kid. On the other hand, I was a very guarded and private person, regarding the issue of the struggles in my own life, desperately afraid someone might find out those realities and reject me. And so there is this very ironic blend of motivations in my life. In one hand, I, I think I had learned, I'd become a learned extrovert. I was the funny guy, I could get up front, I could tell the jokes, I could gain acceptance by, by my humor. Um, and sadly, my humor often was at the expense of others, and I regret that to this day. There's another part of me that was a natural uh, introvert. I just, I just wanted to pull back from everybody because that was safer. That was uh, uh, an easier thing to do. And so every day was a battle for me, uh, trying to live this way. What I came to, to learn through a guy who faithfully discipled me is that both those pursuits were motivated by self-interest. That learned extrovert, that was motivated by self-interest. It wasn't because I cared about other people and I wanted to encourage them and I wanted them to have fun. It was because I wanted them to, to like me, basically. And so it was self-interest, not love, that motivated me to be that way. And also that guy who was the natural in, introvert who wanted to pull back and, and avoid uh, people was also governed by self-interest. And you know what, I was totally blind to those realities. When I walked into that lounge in Hotchkiss Hall, believe it or not, in 1983, I had no idea that these things I just described characterized me. Little did I know that God was going to begin to expose those realities in my life, and I couldn't even anticipate that God was gonna bring people into my life who would love me enough to walk through those things and help me repent and to learn 
to love people in a way that Christ had loved me. The Master's College is an amazing place. If you will allow God, if you will trust God to use his people in your life to be honest with you and for you to be honest with them about who you need to be. And in the midst of that, the greatest thing I discovered is who God is and who God is to me. And that's what I was missing out on. He was missing in the entire equation of my pursuit of spirituality and Christianity. Oh yeah, I did all the right things. I memorized the Bible verses and got the awards and I showed up for evangelism outings. I did all those things, but Christ was missing in the midst of that. And particularly understanding him in terms of his profound love for me and how that would transform my own view of relationships and what it meant to love others. So, I was messed up, okay? Now I'm sure most of you have it better together than I did, all right? But I hope I just gave everybody in here who's struggling permission to be honest with yourselves. If you're honest, then we can make some progress. And I'll tell you some of the areas that God wanted to help me make progress in. So here we go, six lessons I needed to learn uh, in college, six, six spiritual lessons. Number one, my need to understand true Christian liberty. Keep in mind, I was raised in this very legalistic background. I thought liberty, for me, was to be set free from rules so I could do whatever I wanted to do. That was what I was striving for. And so when I heard about Christian liberty, and particularly heard that, you know, we don't need to fulfill all the law and all the commands, Christ does that for us, I thought, this is great, you know? And I can blow off all those rules that I grew up with, and now I can do whatever I want. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. I did not have a biblical perspective uh, on this issue. God's grace revealed that to me. And the text that helped me and the friends who applied it in my own life, I'm indebted to. Find in Galatians chapter five, beginning verse one, it says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He goes on to illustrate this and what Christ did on our behalf, okay? I want you to look down now at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And then he illustrates for us what it means to walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit. It's that wonderful passage of scripture that describes for us the person who's generally characterized by a love for God and a love for others is bearing fruit of the spirit. Characterized by what? Joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those are expressed in the context of relationship. And so I begin to understand over time that Christian liberty, the law that I was set free from, the freedom from having to just check off the list every single day to somehow gain enough of God's approval and his affection. Christ died to fulfill the law. I have no ability in my own strength, in my own power to do anything 
to fulfill the law. I can't do it. And so that tireless treadmill I was on of trying to gain acceptance with God and with others was broken by this great biblical truth. I needed to understand what true Christian liberty is. And this is it, my friends. We have been set free. We have been set free from self-interest. Listen, when we were unredeemed, because of the fall that turned us into self-worshippers, we had no ability, no capacity to do anything in this life other than to seek our own interest, our highest good, at the expense of others. That's why Paul talks about in Galatians chapter five, you see there uh, in verses 16 and following, you know, those who are characterized by the flesh, what do they do? They war with each other, they're factious, divisive. Why are they doing that? Because they're seeking their own interest at the expense of others. Before you and I met Christ, we had no ability, we were slaves, Paul says, to sin. Slaves to sin. You, you could not, you literally could not make a choice to do what was loving. You could only love yourself. And Christ breaks through that, and he sets us free. And now, here's the choice I face every day. It's a choice I didn't have as an unredeemed man, where I could only serve myself. I literally have the choice today, because of the grace of God, to love my wife, to love my kids. It's a choice I didn't have before. That's the freedom that has been entrusted to us through the atoning work of Christ. It's a choice to love that we did not possess before we met him. So understand Christian liberty is not so that you can just run wild doing anything that you wanna do and then accuse anybody who speaks to you about how maybe your actions don't glorify the Lord and justify it with some kind of argument or comment that, hey listen, you know, that's an area of, of my Christian liberty, I can do that. No, the standard in scripture is this. Is your behavior, your actions, your words, are they characterized by a genuine love for others? And here's the good news. We've been set free to do that when we had no power or ability as slaves to sin. That's what Paul outlines for us, and he goes on in the context. If you look at chapter six, what does he say? Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you are spiritual, you who are spiritual, restore such one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Verse two, listen, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What's he saying there? Bearing one another's burdens? Moving towards somebody who has struggles, has needs, and, and you adopt those needs and make every effort to carry those burdens for them or meet those burdens in a sacrificial way? You've been set free to do that because Christ paid the price for us. He rescued us and he redeemed us. One of the things that I often would hear from students over the years here at the college is expressing their own concerns from a point of personal rights. It doesn't, look, we've had different rules, different policies. I hope you understand the spirit of any of those uh, is intended to serve you well. To, to live a life of honoring and glorifying the Lord. But we never put the emphasis here on the rules. We always put the emphasis on the heart. But when I hear somebody 
arguing for their own personal rights. I have every right to do this. How dare you impose any measure of restriction or guideline on me? I hear myself as an 18-year-old student who walked on this campus because that's exactly the way I talked. A person who doesn't understand true Christian liberty is someone who actually is so consumed with their own personal rights and, and they're telling the world around them that that's where their heart is and, and what they're thinking. Well, that may just be one application for you. And these six lessons complement and relate to each other and I wanna give you the second one here. The second lesson I need to learn was my need to demonstrate wholesome speech, wholesome speech. As I just said, I was characterized as one who was more interested in personal rights. So I actually had a lot to say about any rule, policy, professor, staff member, in individual that I actually disagreed with, that I felt was somehow infringing on my own personal rights. And I was characterized, frankly, by a very critical spirit. Oh, that was couched most often with humor. But underneath it, there was an edge always of sarcasm not only was I critical in my comments, characterized by sarcastic speech, human that was at, humor that was at the expense of others, guilty of coarse jesting up in the dorms, my speech was not wholesome. And yet I had no problem getting up on Sunday morning and teaching a Bible study or leading a worship and did not see the disconnect between what I was revealing about my heart and my speech. You know, Christ is clear, isn't he? It's from the heart that man speaks. I didn't realize I was a walking billboard for the condition of my heart. Everybody who listened to me and heard me, what I was shouting to them was the condition of my heart. The pride, the arrogance, that really was an expression of my own fear and self-interest. Turn with me to James chapter three. James addresses this issue very clearly, and I'm sure it'll be a familiar text to most of you. In chapter three, verse eight, he says this, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come, come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? What's James saying here? He's saying those of you who are characterized by duality of speech, you speak good things on some occasions and you speak unloving, harsh, unwholesome words in this occasion. He's saying there's a problem there. There's a root problem in the heart that has not been reconciled. He says it's difficult here for man to control his speech. Why? Because he's prone to sin. He's prone to pride. But here's the great thing. God has promised to work where? Not in the tongue, but in the heart. And if you grow patiently in your knowledge and love of Jesus Christ and in God's revealed will in his word and you meditate on that, what's the promise? That we will be renewed, okay? Our mind will be renewed. 
and our speech eventually will bear fruit that's consistent with the condition of our heart. One of the things I'm most thankful for is an upperclassman who came alongside me one day and he said, you know, you're teaching Bible studies, you're doing all these things, but nobody trusts you. Nobody trusts you. Because you say one thing in that context, but then they know you might talk behind their back in another context. People will never trust you as a man of God to shepherd and to lead them if you don't deal with this issue. And that really pierced my heart, and that was a battle for me because it was so entrenched in my life. And so I went to my friends around me, particularly my roommate at the time, and, and he and I kind of fed each other. And I said, I told him what I was confronted on, and he goes, that's true of me as well. And so we made a covenant with each other that we were going to keep each other in check. And those first few weeks were really painful because I didn't even realize how guilty I was of unwholesome speech. But we kept pointing it out to each other all throughout the day and up in the dorms or whatever we were doing. And it became overwhelming. And then I began to realize what everybody else was seeing in my life. In Psalm 19, verse 14, it says this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to whom? To thee, O Lord. That's the standard. That's the standard. I don't know if you struggle with your speech. But let me just encourage you, God can change your heart. And he can change your speech. Invite your friends to be a part of that process. Commit yourself to meditating on God's word and adopt a standard of not your own opinion. Doesn't really matter. But God's opinion. And when you align your mind, this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter two, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. If you think like Christ, okay, then you're going to speak, act, and live like Christ. And I realized I did not have the mind of Christ in that regard. All right, lesson number three. I needed to learn to unconditionally love others my need to unconditionally love others is the, is the third lesson. And I think I've already given you a context why that was necessary. I had a very conditional view of relationships. Matter of fact, relationships to me were disposable. As long as I could get something from it or I could gain your approval or whatever, then it had value to me. But when I ceased to gain anything that I thought was a benefit from the relationship, I had no problem walking away. Again, I was blind to this, I had no idea. And I was so thankful, many of you met Harry Walls here serving uh, on campus as a minister. God used Harry in my life, he was dean of men at the time, on a road trip to sit me down. I'll never forget it, uh, we made a road trip to Las Vegas uh, to pick up a car that he was buying. And on the way back, we stopped in one of those uh, casino restaurants that advertised you know, the T-bone steaks for five bucks. He was like, man, let's go get a steak for five bucks. And we sat down in this vinyl booth in this hideous casino. And he says, I need to tell you something. He says, I'm grateful that we're friends. But whenever I'm with you, I feel, I feel a, a tug from you. I feel like I always have to perform some way to maintain the relationship. There's pressure I feel from you. I tried to laugh it off, but I, I really respected Harry and he'd been right about everything else he confronted me on, so I knew I needed to listen to him. And I said, all right. He said, 
you really have this view that relationships are conditional. And he says, my greater concern for you is you may think in terms of your relationship with Christ the same way. He goes, I wanna encourage you. He goes, where I grew up and the way I was raised, when I say I love somebody, it just meant I love them and that will never change. And I praise God for somebody like Harry in my life over all these years where we've been separated by miles and, and different callings and ministry and everything else, but he taught me something, that time, space, distance, even conflict does not change a genuine commitment to love a brother. And I needed someone in real space and real time and real terms to model that and teach that to me because then it, it allowed me to look back at my relationship with Christ and realize, wow, I'm not experiencing in my relationship with Christ what I'm beginning to taste of in my relationship with Harry. Look with me in Matthew chapter 16. This is not anything new, but it was new for me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Christ initiating what were the most intimate and committed personal relationships that he would ever have on earth said this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now we know that text of scripture because it's that call to discipleship, to deny yourself, take up your cross, and to die. And that certainly is a qualitative aspect of a commitment to Christ in relationship. I'm gonna die to myself, I'm all in. No hesitation, I'm not holding anything back. But the context here also points to the future. That this was not just a relationship that was gonna be temporary in terms of just a few years on earth. Christ knew he was leaving in three and a half years. He was gonna have a brief time with these men. They did not understand that at this time. But basically what he was saying to them, are you all in? Are you gonna be sold out to a relationship with me? And he knew that that was a relationship that was going to endure for all eternity. And the good news here is he knew these men were broken, they were sinful. He knew Peter would deny him one day. He knew that he would be betrayed by Judas. He knew these things about these men. Christ wasn't naive in extending relationship to them. He knew it was gonna be characterized by brokenness and the effect of sin in the context of that relationship. But what he was offering them was much more than just a temporary friendship or calling to follow some kind of religious leader. He was offering them an eternal relationship. What God affords you and I, who are believers, is not just a temporal relationship, not something that's conditional, it could be forsaken or turned off when it doesn't go right. But it's a commitment that endures, a commitment through the future with him and with one another. When I think in practical application, when you understand this, 
then it helps you in every relationship that you have. Listen, none of us have ever experienced a perfect relationship. Anybody here ever sinned against anybody else? Yeah, every hand should go up, okay? And you'll do it probably 20 times today, okay? We hope in the promise that God will perfect us and we'll grow in holiness and mature in love. We hope we do it less today than we did tomorrow, or I'm sorry, yesterday. That's our hope. But here's what it means for us. You're gonna have conflict, you're gonna experience brokenness, you're gonna experience offense in the best of relationships. And the lesson I learned about unconditionally loving others was that conflict does not equal commitment. This was huge. See, in my life to that date, if there was conflict, then I'd just walk away from it, the relationship. But I'll tell you, now as a 50-year-old man, committed to serve and, and be involved in, in ministry, the number one thing I see in the church and in ministry is people who don't know how to work through conflict in a relationship. And people separate, they divide, they become factious, they draw others around them to justify their point of view. Ministries are crippled, churches are divided, the gospel is invalidated, and our testimony is compromised. I am so thankful that someone moved towards me and taught me that conflict doesn't equal commitment. My wife and I talked about this when we first got married. And I used to drive her crazy because we might be having a conflict and I would just start smiling in the midst of it. And she's like, that really aggravates me. Why are you smiling? I said, you know, babe, because no matter what this issue is, I'm in this for life. And I know you are as well. We'll work through it. We'll find our way. Okay? And you're helping be an instrument of God to perfect me, to point out issues in my own life. And when you can have relationships that are characterized by that kind of commitment, no matter what comes, no matter what happens, you're in it for life. That's the example of Christ towards us. Now, the fourth thing that I had to learn was this, and it builds on this. The fourth lesson was my need to practice relational integrity, okay? I told you I was someone who is used to portraying an image, but this idea of exposing the real me, it was only someone who demonstrated to me that unconditional love, that commitment for a lifetime that gave me the freedom to be real, to be honest. I'm like, are you serious? You're not gonna walk away? Now the foolishness of, uh, of my own mind is I actually thought other people couldn't see who the real me was. Here he goes, look, I'm not surprised. <laughs> by those things, I see the way you talk, I see the choices you make, I see your behavior. And I realized then that what a committed, godly, gospel-based relationship affords us is the chance to be honest. And once we're honest, then God gets to do some of his greatest work. There's another upperclassman who faithfully was discipling me at the time and he said, all right, let's just talk. And I just began to trust. I mean, this was so huge, a step of faith for me. Someone who had lived most of their life trying to hide the realities of their soul, now I was in a position that I was going to be honest and confess those things. And so I kind of ventured out a little bit in faith, 
you know, and I'd share some things. And sure enough, they didn't go anywhere. I said, all right, let's pray about those. Let's, let's study God's word. Let's talk about how you can overcome those things. And I'd trust them just a little bit more until the point I discovered that I could trust them and what they were saying was true. And then I was able to just be transparent and to confess the realities of my heart. I'll never forget there was a young guy on campus. Uh, we were classmates, but I hated him. Can I just be honest? I really didn't like him because he was better at everything than I was. And because I had that competitive kind of attitude, if that's how I gained acceptance, I had to excel at everything, which is impossible and really lame. But <laughs> so I looked at other people who were successful in other areas and I would judge them in my heart. And I would convince myself that, you know, they're just arrogant, they're proud, you know, they've got the problem. And I remember walking down stairs in Hotchkiss and I was looking for uh, a friend of mine and he was roommates with this guy. And at this point, three quarters of the year had gone by and I'd done everything to avoid this guy, criticize him behind his back and so forth. And I knocked on the door and someone said, come in, and I did, and my friend wasn't there, it was this guy. Now it's that awkward like experience. Like, do I just like blow him off, walk out and leave? Do I tell a lie? What do I do? And he says something I'll never forget. He says, hey, come on in, sit down on the bed. And he goes, I just wanna to apologize to you. I haven't really made any effort to try to get to know you. And he says, here's some things you know, that are going on in my life. And he just kind of, for some reason, trusted me enough to share some of the things that, that were going on. And I'll never forget sitting in that dorm room so convicted that here was a guy I could have had a relationship with who himself was striving to know God. He wasn't perfect. But he wasn't the horrible, evil person I had manufactured in my mind that I could compete with. He was just a guy like me, and he was kind enough to initiate towards me. And this is really what made a huge difference, is I realized that if someone would move past the facades that we create and give somebody permission to drop that facade, then you might actually experience friendship with other people instead of just this competitive, uh, kind of proud posture that you have. I still am prone to struggle with that. Uh, in my life, but I'm thankful that I learned to move towards people. And we see this in Romans chapter five, verse eight, just a, a clear verse about Christ himself. Look there with me. I love this verse. It's one I go back to on many occasions because it corrects uh, or auto-corrects everything I'm thinking. Romans chapter five. Verse eight. It says this, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ says in John chapter 15, greater love hath no man than this, he would lay down his life for his friends. You take that thought and the thought of Romans chapter Five, verse eight, where it says that God demonstrated his own love towards us and gave his life on our behalf. That means the greatest demonstration of love that anyone could ever demonstrate was demonstrated by God himself on my behalf. And it was all conditioned on this. He knew my utter, vile, wicked, sinful reality. 
Someone loved me when they knew the truth of who I was. Listen, you know what you have to offer people? Not unconditional love, okay? Or not relationships that don't practice uh, genuine integrity and moving towards each other. You have the opportunity to know somebody in spite of their weaknesses and say, I, I love you and I care about you. Let's talk about those. Let's work through those. And guess what? I struggle with them as well. There's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with certain issues in this life. Matter of fact, I'll add this tonight in my notes. You know what? We're told in the book of Hebrews that Christ empathizes with us himself. He knows what it's like to walk on this planet. He knows about contending with the temptations of this world. All right, I gotta move fast to give you the rest. Number five, my need to honor authority regardless of my preferences. My need to honor authority regardless of my preferences. Romans chapter 13, turn a few pages over. Let's see what Paul says about this. He says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. He goes on to talk about how we're to honor and submit to authority. This term is used over 40 times in the New Testament, and repeatedly we're instructed to submit to those who God has appointed to lead us. What does Paul say here in verse one? There's no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. I remember coming out of my parents' authority, coming to college, and again, I was thinking, I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Only to discover there were rules and policies and expectations here uh, at the college. But I thought, hey, you know, I'm an adult now. I don't have any obligation uh, to those rules or policies. What I didn't understand at that stage in my life is that God's ordained multiple authorities in our life all throughout our lives. Parents, we're called to continue to honor them throughout our lives. Not only the leadership of the school, it might be that for you here, whether you agree or disagree with what you're asked to do here, but let me tell you something, as soon as you graduate, hopefully you're gonna get a job, and guess what? There's gonna be all kinds of policies and rules and dress code requirements. You know, God bless those people who work at hot dog on a stick and anywhere else, right? So dress code is not just limited to your experience at the master's college. This is one of the things that's common to life, okay? So you're gonna have an employer who has rules over you. You will always be in the context of spiritual authority in the context of the church, okay? You're gonna have government authorities in your life. I could go on and on, get the point? There's a whole host of authorities and what God is saying in his word is he's appointed all of them. So guess what, I was just having this conversation with my son Hope you wouldn't mind me telling you this. We're working on this principle in our own home. And I said, buddy, what you're struggling with in your heart is you think you only have to obey with those things we're asking you to do that you think make sense or you agree with. And here's the key part of the lesson that I learned. When I understood that God ordained all authority, it didn't matter if I agreed with it or not. Unless it was asking me to violate a clear biblical mandate, it didn't matter. My opinion doesn't matter. God in his sovereignty has already ordained those leaders. He has led them to make those policies. And I could find, here it is, great freedom in obeying. 
I'll never forget when I understood that principle. It was like, I am wasting so much emotional and spiritual energy in my spirit and in my relationship, just criticizing, turning over these things. And I was, wait a second, if God's ordained all those, it's how much time and energy am I wasting and how am I provoking other people around me to be discontent as well? And so I began to just test that a little bit. It was like, just shut up and obey. Just do it. And do it with a glad heart. And all of a sudden, it was like, I didn't even care about the rules anymore. I was like, God's in control. I'll do it. That's good. Whatever. You know, I need to wear it to class or I need to go here or whatever I need to do. It's just not even an issue for me. I'm free to think about who God is, his people, and what he's called me to do. Well, there's a lot more I could say to you about authority. But I would hope that you come to a place in your life where you experience that kind of freedom. Lastly, and I'll bring it home here, the last lesson is my need to understand leadership in terms of service. I won't have you turn there, but Matthew chapter 10, verses 41 through 45 is an account where two of his disciples come to him and say, we like the seats of honor, sit on your right and your left in the kingdom. And Christ says to them, listen, the values of my kingdom are completely different than this world. You define leadership by positions of authority and power and prestige. Let me tell you what, in my kingdom, that's flipped upside down. The person who really brings honor to me is a person who just faithfully serves, not seeking recognition, not seeking position, but is the one who just understands they're an unredeemed person who deserves nothing. And if there's a need, you move towards it and you try to meet it, gladly, lovingly, now here's what happens with servant leadership is people will observe your faithfulness and they will invite you to take on more responsibility. Oh, you can go and lobby for some position. You can go try to persuade people that, that you're worthy and, and that you deserve that job. Or you can simply say, in the sovereignty of God, I just need to serve, do my best work, do it with diligence, faithfulness, a concern for others. If there's a need, I'm gonna try to meet it whether people see it or not. Trust me, over time, people will see that in your character. And particularly godly people, that's who they want on their team. And they'll say, you're trustworthy, okay? Because you're not just governed by your own ambition. See, a person who's governed by their own ambition and position of power and authority is a dangerous person. Because they will be guilty of what the scriptures call injustice. They will use their position for personal gain at the expense of others under their authority. And trust me, scriptures have a lot to say about this. But I was thankfully instructed and modeled and confronted and, and given an opportunity to just serve. And the freedom that came with that was a joy. I don't have to worry about trying to attain and move up all these steps of the ladder. Just do my work as unto the Lord. And do it for the Lord. Remember that Testimony of Christ in uh, Matthew chapter six where he talks about the, the difference between the Pharisee and the publican. What's the Pharisee do when it comes to pray? Oh God, you know, he stands out there and he bellows out this great prayer so that everybody looks to him. But where's the publican go and pray? In his closet quietly where nobody observes him. And what's Christ saying? The person who really is my disciple is characterized by humility who's not looking to gain the applause of men. 
If you could be free from the ambition to gain the applause of men, I tell you, God will use you in some amazing ways. I told you I was just in Cambodia with two graduates, Darren and Jody Beck, Bora and others who were there. We had a great time. But you know what? Cambodia is not an easy place to live. And I remember Darren and Jody, they moved there 15 years ago. No applause of men. Life was not easy for them. But God has used them over 15 years to love, disciple, shepherd others. There's churches there, there's Christian schools there, there's ministries there that have come as a result of that kind of lesson learned, all right? Well, we need to close. And let me just do this by saying in 2 Timothy 2, verses 21 through 26, Paul puts his arm Timothy in this epistle and he says, listen, as a young man, as a young man in leadership, do not be guilty of selfish ambition, okay? Just seek to serve. If you want to be used of God to impact others for Christ, then you need to work in your own heart these years at the Master's College to identify and then repent of youthful lusts. And I hope the lessons I learned have served you well this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your long-suffering and patience demonstrated towards us in our weakness, our sinfulness, our brokenness. You meet us there. You perfectly love us and free us to live a life that is radically different than what the world suggests finds meaning and purpose. I pray for every student here that you would accomplish great things in their life and the lessons that they need to learn, they would quickly submit themselves to and be eager to receive from your hand. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Thanks, you guys.